My name's Kath Porter and I'm the director of Young Lives, which is a long-running research study based at the University of Oxford. You're going to hear a bit more about Young Lives, but I'll first introduce the speakers who I've got with me today. I'm very happy to have Sarah Lane Smith, Research Advisor at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, or FCDO, as we'll probably refer to it from now on. Welcome, Sarah. Lovely to have you here. And Kath Ford, who's our Senior Policy Officer at Young Lives. Thanks, Kath. Thanks, Sarah. Welcome and thanks for being here. So this is one of three podcasts that we're doing on Young Lives' latest research about skills and education. As I said before, we've been following the lives of these children who are now not children at all. They're aged 22 and 29 years. And we've now got a whole trajectory of their education development and their skills development right up from early childhood into adulthood. And Young Lives goes to the homes of children as well. We do have some school surveys, but we also capture those who are not in school, which I think is really important. We also ask questions about a whole wealth of other issues than skills and education, so we can look at the whole life um, of the child, their family, their community, etc. So I'd like to focus now on the research that we've recently published, and I want to bring up uh, three key findings that we've got and get your take, Sarah and Kath, on what these mean for, for policy. Um, so one of our research themes is the importance of early life circumstances and how these are important for later life outcomes. So one important finding that we've got is that climate shocks, things like floods or drought or extreme temperatures, etc. These sorts of things, which are becoming more and more common um, due to climate change, when these things happen in early childhood, they can have an effect on skills in later childhood. And our new research that's been published in the last year is looking at another aspect of skills, which are called foundational cognitive skills. Now, these we call, uh, Kath coined the phrase, the building blocks of the brain. Uh, so they're things like working memory, inhibitory control, that kind of thing. So this new evidence, it complements earlier evidence that we've got on the importance of early life environment for things like maths, test score and vocabulary, that sort of thing. So Kath, you've been looking at our findings and I think something that's really interesting uh, that we found is that government policy can still remediate the effect of these shocks, even though the first thousand days are so important. So if you could tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, thanks, Kath. I mean, I think the Young Lives findings are really stark, actually, on this. And just to give a few specific examples to illustrate some of the findings you've been mentioning. So in Ethiopia, for example, we've seen that children in households that have experienced drought or food price inflations in times of crisis, they perform significantly worse in basic vocabulary tests, maths tests at school um, compared to those who haven't experienced those climate shocks. In India, we've also seen intergenerational effects of this. So even where during the gestation period, so this is when mothers are pregnant, if those if those young women experience climate shocks such as floods or cyclones, 
we can track an effect on their future um, children right out into childhood and into adolescence. So, for example, looking at their vocabulary skills by the age of five, we see significantly worse test scores. But even things like the social and emotional skills, so that's things like children's self-esteem, their sense of control over their lives, their sense of agency, we see effects on that right out into adolescence up to the age of 15. So, so this for me is really profound. It's not just the impact on young children, but it's intergenerational effects. And you mentioned our new research on on what's coined as foundational um, cognitive skills, and and yes, I refer, I think of those as the building blocks of of complex thought and effective learning. So they're things like long term memory skills. Um, they're things like the ability to be able to concentrate on a specific task, which is called um, is referred to as inhibitory control skills. Um, muscle memory or implicit learning. So these are very important and basic skills um, that we all develop um, throughout our lifetime. So we see an impact on these skills. For example, in Peru, children who've experienced rainfall shocks again, droughts and floods, in that first thousand days, really important, those first early days, we're seeing long lasting effects on their working memory and their ability right out to the age of 12. So they're having these long-term impacts. So your question really, Kath, to me is, so, so what does that mean from a policy perspective? What can be done? For me, one of the most hopeful messages from our research to date is that we see that these effects are not irreversible and they're not inevitable either. So I think that's a really important and hopeful message for policymakers. I think our, our new evidence is pretty groundbreaking. And what we've been able to show is that children from households that have received safety nets, often referred to as social protection, things like cash transfers, food aid, etc., those children are less likely to be experiencing these effects. And the reason is that we see that those safety nets, that, that cash transfer, the social protection, that mitigates some of these negative effects of, of poverty and climate shocks. So it can improve nutrition. Families have more um, resources for, for the whole family. But it also means that there's less pressure on children to help out in family farms and there's more time for them to study and learn. And these have big effects then on their cognitive skills. Thanks, Kath. You've really summed it up well. Sarah, I thought um, I'd ask you about how this adds value to other research that you know is out there on education, on early life, etc. Thank you, Kath. I think I'm really coming at this from the perspective of you know, someone who works at FCDO in the Research and Evidence Directorate. We fund a huge amount of different research studies. So my perspective is what is new and different about this evidence as compared to some of the other evidence that we invest in, right? What's its value add? And I can't echo enough your sentiments or both of you that this uh, this new research on the effects of climate shocks in early life and the possible remediation of, of social protection mechanisms is really, really groundbreaking and new um, and unique. So I guess I want to talk a little bit about how I think that it's closing a sort of golden triangle of evidence. So the whole area of climate and education research is really emergent. There's not a lot of um, data and evidence and research studies in this space. 
and even fewer that are robust and replicable in across different contexts. So what I think that we've had before, before this new Young Lives evidence, is that we've had emergent evidence on the adverse impacts of climate change on education systems, right? So that could be literally things like natural disasters, flooding and washing away of schools. It could be, you know, we've got fairly robust evidence on the impact of rising temperatures on learning, for instance. You know, we've got we've got a fairly good evidence base emerging around the fact that climate change is really worsening the outcomes that education systems are able to achieve. Separately, we've also had good evidence that social protection mechanisms such as cash transfers, conditional, whether sort of conditional or unconditional or so-called cash plus, that they can have, you know, if well targeted and well designed, they can have really positive educational outcomes, whether that's about getting out of school children back into school, whether that's about thereby increasing their learning. You know, we've got fairly good evidence on that. What I don't think we've ever had before is evidence that really connects the dots therein, right? And says, yes, uh, climate change, climate shocks are having really long-lasting, significant impacts on children's skills development and educational outcomes. And as you just discussed, Kath, that's not in one context. We've seen that across several of the Young Lives study countries. And those happen earlier than we might even have thought that they would would be happening, right, before school age. And that social protection itself can play a role in remediating um, the effects of those shocks. So I think that that, I really see it as the closing of a golden triangle and it has huge policy implications, huge and and sort of well-defined policy impl- implications. Um, I just want to talk briefly as well about a unique feature of young lives, which is that it's a longitudinal research program, as Kath, as you mentioned in your introduction. Um, we don't, as FCDO, we don't actually invest in many longitudinal data programs. And this program in particular has been running for over 20 years and has had support from the UK government throughout its history, which is very unusual. And what does that, what does our investment, what does having that kind of program in our research portfolio allow us, what insights does that allow us to have that we don't get from other research instruments, right? And I think that it really allows us to take a very holistic, very life cycle approach to developing policy for education system improvement, as well as a very intersectoral approach. As Kath was saying, young lives, they don't just ask questions about education and skills, they ask a huge array of questions about, you know, household circumstances, family dynamics, nutrition, you know, you name it. So, I, you know, I think that there are two very clear implications that have been possible through this long-term approach. Firstly, and I've sort of alluded to this already, we now know that even very early shocks, even shocks experienced by a child in utero can have really long-lasting impacts, which is tragic, right? But like you say, there's a hopeful message as well. But I think what's important about that is that if we were using instruments that only started to measure skill development at school age or for within school children, then we could be radically underestimating the adverse impacts of climate on skills and on educational outcomes because we would have missed the vulnerability of those first thousand days and the importance of that, recognising that for policy. And secondly, and this this is really research that was using Young Lives data, but was actually 
um, a secondary analysis done by another investment, which is the Research on Improving Systems of Education program, they used Young Lives data to show that actually low levels of foundational skills, so here they were actually using things, the more traditional foundational skills like literacy and numeracy, but I think that it would be really interesting to look at the comparisons with the building blocks that you were talking about. But they showed that low levels of foundational skills can in and of themselves drive later dropout, particularly for girls, right, in school. So we often think about learning and access as two quite separate agendas. Um, and we can have policies that target improvements in one and policies that target improvements in the other. But to my knowledge, this was the first time that we really saw the the role of low learning itself in driving later low access to education. Thanks so much, Sarah. Yeah, you've really brought in a lot of ways of rounding this together between yeah the research on skills, the research that goes on inside schools and the research outside schools. And I'd like to just build on that a little bit more. Like we say, social protection or cash transfers, etc. They're not run by the Ministry of Education. They're not an education policy. They have a different objective usually. So just building on this, if you can elaborate a bit more maybe about how this kind of research can complement the kinds of evidence that you see on how schools and education systems can build skills and how we can think more holistically. Yeah, thanks, Kath. I think that there's a really important almost sort of fallacy that I see commonly made in kind of policymaking circles, which is to say, and it's not, it's not just a failure of intersectoralism, although it, that is very common as well, but there's a sort of way of thinking that goes, we want to, we want to improve educational outcomes, whether that's access or learning or whatever. Therefore, our intervention point must be the edu- you know, the schooling system itself, right? And like you say, cash transfers, social protection mechanisms are not formally part of the schooling system. They would not even reside, you know, control over that kind of policy would not even reside in a similar ministry. And, you know, obviously there are a whole range of issues that we can target through the schooling system itself and we've we've started to get really really good evidence on you know how we can improve pedagogy how we can ensure that children are taught at the right level the so-called sort of teaching at the right level tal approach you know and and a lot of these things are shown to be very very effective so we we've got a really sort of good and increasing evidence base on what can be done at the classroom level, as well as the system level, right? We have good evidence about how we really need to pay attention to relationships of accountability in the education system, right? How are head teachers reporting to district officials? What are the relationships of accountability and incentives within those key actors within an education system? But I think that what we're not doing enough is looking outside of the education system and not just when we're targeting out-of-school children, but even for the in-school children, and really thinking laterally about, you know, what are the intervention points that could leverage real change for children taking a holistic and long-term view of their education trajectory? And social protection is one of those instruments, clearly, as shown by this new evidence. Um, So we do need to be working in a more holistic way. We need to be working in a more life cycle approach way and a more cross-sectoral way. And I think that Young Lives evidence has played a real key role in, in hammering that message home. I guess just lastly, I would say that 
I think we've got a huge and unique opportunity with this latest round of data collection that Young Lives are doing at the moment. And for those not aware, Young Lives are currently in the field doing round seven of their quantitative data collection across the four study countries. And what that allows us is the opportunity to compare the early life circumstances, whether that's you know, in terms of climate shocks, whether that's in terms of the educational opportunities that children have been afforded, whether that was their household situation, household income, gender dynamics, birth order, you name it, to look at those factors and how they intersect with each other to drive later outcomes. So whether that's, you know, so that is includes schooling outcomes, you know, what's the highest level of schooling they achieved? What level of learning did they achieve? Did they pass their final school exams? And also their entry into the labour market. And that is really important. And SCDO are hugely interested in that, right? Are these kids gaining access to decent work, secure, reliable employment that allows them to begin to break cycles of intergenerational poverty, delay fertility, etc.? And we know it's not an automatic relationship, of course. But what we need to understand are the nuances of how a person's early life and experience through education then translate into later outcomes. Thanks so much, Sarah. I mean, Kath, this must be music to your ears. Absolutely. Uh, your, um, uh, your phrase, enabling environment, is one that we use a lot in Young Lives. Do you want to just elaborate a bit on what we mean by that? Yes, thanks, Kath. So I would echo uh, what Sarah has so eloquently uh, laid out for us. And, and we talk a lot in Young Lives about the importance of a supportive and an enabling environment for children. And I think this is particularly important as vulnerable households are increasingly grappling with global crises. So we've We've seen the COVID pandemic over the last few years, which has had profound effects on the, the, the young people and their households in, in our study. And of course, the increasing impact of, of climate shocks, and climate change, as we've just been discussing in Ethiopia, many of our households are, have uh, and continue to be navigating very traumatic um, experiences of the civil conflict. <clears throat> you know, we've been looking at how these huge global crises compound and impact on everyday lives. So that supportive and enabling environment is ever, you know, increasingly important if we're to maximise investments in schools and uh, what happens in the classroom. So that that means ensuring that children get the right start in life. We've talked about sufficient and healthy diets, protecting their time, enabling them to actually get safely to school. All of these things are critical particularly for, for, for girls and, ad, um, and adolescents. So I think from a going back to the discussion we've been having about the, the potential for safety nets, social protection programs to, to, to really help, I think from a policy point of view, that means thinking very carefully about how these programs are adapted to climate shocks and how they're expanded to really target those most in need. So from the perspective of what we're talking about today, that's about ensuring that children who are undernourished, 
who may be physically stunted in the early years, targeting those who've been excluded from preschool and early education. So they may have, through poverty or climate shocks, already be experiencing negative effects on their cognitive skills. But we know, as I mentioned before, that these things are are reversible. So targeting support to those most in need is crucial. And that also means thinking about how adolescent girls and young women during their pregnancy are supported. So getting support to to pregnant mothers, young mums, is important not only for safeguarding their own health and well-being, but as we're increasingly seeing, that's incredibly important for their children's development. So this is about helping to break intergenerational cycles of poverty. So moving to another focus of the recent research that Young Lives has been working on over the past year, a big focus has been gender and in particular um, how gender gaps to the detriment of girls, young women, widen during adolescence. And we've produced three papers uh, recently and uh, there are two podcasts uh, in addition to this one which focus in depth on two of the other papers. One is with Dr. Renu Singh looking at how uh, young women are less likely to be able to complete their higher education in the context of India. So she speaks at length um, to that with me in another podcast. I also talked to Dr. Matthew Jukes about his paper, which is looking at how gaps between boys and girls really widen in adolescence, in particular in social and emotional skills. The things we were mentioning before, like self-esteem, self-efficacy, things that are related to empowerment of girls and young women and these gaps really widening up after the age of 12. There's a third paper in that suite, which um, I have been involved with uh, myself, where we've looked at the the consequences of having those skills. And it speaks to the point you made earlier, Sarah, about, OK, we, we're, we're supporting young people, girls in particular, to build their skills. but what does this lead to in terms of their outcomes in the labour market? So we've looked at that together with Marcelo Perez and Anvita Ramachandran. And we found that even girls who've actually got relatively high levels of skills are much less likely to secure a decent job, well paid with a contract, that kind of thing. So there is a big gap in labour market participation, actually in all four of our Young Lives country. So we focused in on India and the gaps in in education systems, but even in Vietnam and Peru, we still see these gaps uh, amongst girls. So Kath, again, you've 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 done some summarizing and analyzing of all these research findings on gender. So um, can you speak a little bit about what you've found and found important in that? Yeah, thanks, Kath. I mean. You, you just outlined some really striking findings um, to me. I think the assumption that better skills equals better opportunities is something that we're able to really challenge. And, you know, you, you mentioned two things there that I think are really important. One is understanding that even though boys and girls in the early years were seeing, you know, have, have very similar skill levels, once they hit adolescence, then we, we're seeing these marked differences. So something's going on. Not surprising, probably, to lots of listeners who, who have you know worked 
in in uh, with with young girls and adolescent girls over the years, but we're seeing profound differences in skill levels. And as you've said, Kath, particularly in those social and emotional skills, sense of control over your life, belief that you can achieve your goals, and we see it despite the fact. So even so, in countries like Vietnam, where girls actually often achieve higher educational uh, outputs than boys. They're doing better in, in their exams than, than adolescent boys, but they still were, were seeing a marked uh, a, a decrease in, in their social and emotional um, uh, abilities. And secondly, then, in terms of that assumption that if you have better skills and you come out with good exam results, that means that you're more likely to access decent work. In countries like India, we see that is not the case. Okay, so so again, from a policy point of view, the glaring issue here to me is really about addressing gender discrimination in its many forms. Um, and this is really critical. It's critical to keep uh, young adolescent girls in school. It's critical to enable them to fulfill their potential and to be developing the, the full skill base uh, across both cognitive and, and social and emotional skills. And it's critical for them to then uh, access decent work and fulfill their, their, uh, their lives with their families, etc. So what does that mean? It means challenging the social norms that are discriminating against um, girls and boys. One of the interesting findings uh, that we've recently been looking at is around trying to shift gender bias in aspirations. So not only the aspirations of the girls themselves, but also the aspirations of their parents. So, so that's Number one, understanding, you know, what are parental expectations? How are they different for their boys, for, for, for boys and girls, uh, for their sons and daughters? And what impact is that having on their children's own aspirations? And it means engaging with whole communities, engaging with, with men and boys, with local leaders, civil society, etc. And, and continuing to, to put that front and centre um, in our efforts on supporting skills development. I think there are some some practical initiatives um, that are really important and can help as well. So we've talked, we've mentioned a little bit um, about protecting young people's time to study and to get to school. For young girls and adolescent girls, that's particularly important. So they're the ones who often carry the greatest burden of helping out in the home. They're much more likely to be doing unpaid care work of looking after um, extended family children and, and uh, elderly people, particularly in times of crisis as well. So practical initiatives to, to help address those unpaid care. So that might mean better access to affordable childcare. It also brings in the safety nets aspect as well. Reducing early marriage is another huge factor um, with benefits for, for girls and young women you know, across many areas of their lives. Um, and that requires really understanding the underlying drivers 
um, of, of early marriage, which are predominantly related to, to poverty and, and um, discriminatory uh, gender norms. Um, we know that legislation alone is not enough. So it's about understanding why these things, why early marriage continues to persist in certain uh, communities and then working um, with with communities um, in order to try and um, uh, work to, to reduce that. And then, I mean, specific, we, we talked about social and emotional skills. What we do see, you know, initiatives that try to combine education curricula with life skills and mentoring tend to, to you know, that, that's where we're seeing some, some good results, but we definitely need a lot more research in, in this area in terms of what works. Um, and for higher education, which you've just mentioned, Dr. Renu Singh has spoken about in one of our earlier podcasts, Expanding scholarships, accommodation facilities, um, ensuring that, um, again, this is about a supportive and enabling environment and really targeting adolescent girls and young women from poor and disadvantaged households is incredibly important. Thanks so much, Kath. Sarah, would you like to add to that? Yeah, sure. I think that you've outlined some really important practical lessons emerging from the um, the gender dimension of Young Lives research there, Kath. And I think that for us in FCDO, I think it's really important that we recognise that increasing learning levels or schooling access in and of itself is not necessarily going to lead to better labour market outcomes for women and girls. We need to recognise that, but that does not in any way undermine the need to improve educational outcomes for girls. What it does is point to the need for us to get better at looking at the kind of holistic instruments that we have at our disposal to put the enabling factors in place to ensure that those girls can convert the educational opportunities that they've had into decent work. Because there's no... There's no doubt that better skills alongside other factors will enable them to have better and more productive access um, and participation in the labour market. So I think it's really about those enabling factors. And when I think about, you know, I in particular work on education research programmes and I think that we need to do much more on understanding what are the relationships between cognitive and socio-emotional skills? You were saying in Vietnam, you know, even though girls perform better in the cognitive dimension, from adolescence, we can see that they start to perform worse in the socio-emotional dimension, right? So it's not, again, it's not an automatic relationship. But we, you know, common sense tells us that there should be some relationship, right? So what are the, you know, what are the things that we're missing that, are, that would allow girls to convert access to schooling, improve cognitive skills with simultaneously building their socio-emotional and non-cognitive skills, agency, empowerment, things like that. And also, how can we use schooling and teaching to itself begin to challenge gender-based norms for the children and within their community, right? Because these are really key instruments that communities and countries are investing in. So how can we use schooling and the school system as a platform to begin to change gender norms? And the last thing I would say is that 
I think that far little, too little attention is paid to the issue of gender-based violence within schools, right? So in many schooling systems, it's actually boys that that might face more of certain types of violence than girls, more aggression from teachers, corporal punishment, that kind of thing. But what we know is that sort of gender-based and sexual violence is very, very pervasive for girls in schools. And unsurprisingly, if schools are not deemed to be a safe environment for adolescent girls and young women, then, you know, how can we even begin to address some of the other issues towards building their socio-emotional or cognitive skills. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks so much, both of you, on that. So, I mean, what I'm finding really interesting and why I wanted to do this podcast is getting your perspective with your experience in, in the policy world. And um, as most people know, I'm a researcher, so, you know, I, I often focus on how to make sure that the evidence we're producing is robust, we're really able to say what we're saying, etc. But, you know, we're sitting here in the dreaming spires of Oxford, um, and it's great to finish a paper and, and, and think about what, you know, policy implications are. But obviously, the next step is how to actually influence policy. And it's something that people talk about a lot. But given your wealth of experience, I wanted to ask you both about how we actually do that. So, Sarah, can I come to you first to ask that? Sure. I mean, in a way, Kath, this is the million dollar question. <laughs> so I'm not going to sit here and say that I have all the answers, but I am going to say that I think that there are sort of two sides to an important coin here, if I might use that analogy. And I think one of those sides is about really patient, long-term relationship building. It's about trustedness. It's about becoming a trusted evidence broker in a policy space, right? And I think that that's something that Young Lives really excels at. Um, so, you know, and this is something you can't do it in a couple of years, right? You need to build up those relationships, particularly in country you need to have built up those relationships, not just with politicians who we all know come and go, but with the, you know, the middle management, with the civil servants, with the officials, right? You need to have really built in those structures that endure, that allow you to present your evidence at key moments. And of course, all the, all the normal things that we would expect, like salience and timeliness and and presentation and framing, all of those things are really important. But beneath that, I think, is the trustedness of the relationship that you need to build up over a really long time. And I think we see that time and time again in examples of young lives, evidence impacting policy. We see that what, what was the underlying factor there? It was the, the length and the trustedness of the relationship. And I guess one other factor I want to draw attention to that's important for that kind of patient long-term relationship building is research integrity. So that comes back to the robustness point. So it's not easy, especially when research needs to be funded, right? It's not easy to remain true to your mission, to remain true to the robustness of your findings, to, you know, not bow to pressure sometimes to go beyond what the evidence says in policy fora. Um, to take money from wherever, whatever source it might be coming from, you need to balance that. That need to to re, you know retain integrity and retain 
a sort of constant vision of the importance of your project, the importance of the data comparability of, you know, really restricting yourselves to what the evidence genuinely says about an issue and resisting a temptation to go beyond that. And that is how you become trusted. And I think that Young Lives, from the conversations I have with policymakers in FCDO and beyond, has that trustedness. And you can't buy that, you know? It's something you build up over a really, really long time. The flip side of this coin is you need to be reactive. You need to be quick. You need to be agile, right? And so how does a research program balance the first area I was talking about with the ability to pivot and be agile when a window of political opportunity presents itself? And I think that that's genuinely difficult, but absolutely necessary if we want to influence policy, because we know that sometimes these windows of opportunities come and go quite quickly. And if you don't influence it at the right time, then there's a, you know, there's a five year implementation program rolled out hundreds of millions of pounds, and it's too late to influence it because the machine is already working. And I think that, you know, I guess one key learning for me in watching in particular how different research programs were able to influence policy during the pandemic, during the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, was that you need to resource that agility, right? So whether that's the researchers themselves or whether it's having dedicated staff within your program, you know, employed to start bringing out the policy implications and to communicate them strategically and have a sort of engagement strategy, You need to resource it because it will not happen automatically. And one of the things that I've noticed is that the the Young Lives Country uh, leads for the research spend a good deal of their time engaging in policy fora, going to government meetings, even convening and hosting some of these fora themselves. And, you know, I'm sure that a lot of researchers would actually like to spend more of their time writing papers and getting published. But it's that time investment that allows them to recognize the opportunity, allows them to jump on the opportunity. And I think we've seen really great examples of that, whether that was, you know, Young Lives um, evidence from your phone surveys beginning to influence policies around school, safe school reopening in Ethiopia, whether that was, you know, some of the relationships that Young Lives were able to forge with key Um, international actors such as the Food and Agricultural Association on measuring food insecurity during your COVID phone surveys. You know, these are all things that were about capitalising on opportunities of the moment. Um, And I think it's something that you do really well. And if I may come in to build on uh, some of Sarah's points there, I think in terms of I completely agree. And, you know, I would always underline, you know, the long term relationships of trust, collaboration, absolutely critical. Alongside that is understanding the country context in which we work in. So it it goes along. I mean, we're talking about, you know, working with um, so Young Lives works with teams in the four countries that we we, um, do our research with, with with country directors and and their teams who've been there for many, many, many years. And that understanding, when I say understanding country context, what I really mean is 
really understanding who are the decision makers, who holds the the real power levers, who are the thought leaders, uh, what are what are their incentives to change? So what is it within the Ministry of Education? Who is it in the Ministry of Education in Ethiopia that we really need to be targeting? We know the, the minister might come and go, as you've just said, you know, and having those those relationships with civil servants, with NGOs, with, you know, working collaboratively with others. So you're building coalitions for change. All of these things are really critical and it's different in different country contexts. And like you say, Sarah, sometimes opportunities just pop up. <laughs> you know, suddenly there'll, there'll be a, a movement for change in, in an area that maybe we hadn't been focusing on. And, and you know, to have impact, it does require a, an organisation like Young Lives to work very flexibly. What I would then say is that those relationships of trust are not just between researchers, policymakers, et cetera, but also between us as a research program and our funders mm. and our donors. Okay, so, so having the trust between, in, in our case, um, at the FCDO is one of our main funders uh, over the years, that relationship is incredibly important um, to allow us to have the space to work flexibly. So not being constrained by very short-term deliverables is really important for a long-term, longitudinal research to policy impact program like Young Lives. So, so I would really underline that and encourage the donors and the funders to 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 be brave enough to think long term and to ensure that that you know we can work collaboratively and support programs to actually be able to deliver in the long term and that's not easy because we all live in a world where short term you know everyone wants results tomorrow so so i think that relationship of trust is is equally important um, at that level if I may just respond to that, I completely agree. And I think it it's not always possible. It's not always going to be possible, right, for us to fund a programme for 20 years, like has happened in this unique instance. But I think that we, you know, there's a responsibility from us as funders to ensure that where we have ecosystems or coalitions for change that have been built up over many years in country contexts that have built up that key understanding of the political economy locally and the incentives of different actors within a system, that we don't come in and start from scratch every time we want to do some research or indeed implementation in a region. Right? We look at the value that we've built up already and right that might include you know, continuing to channel funding through those instruments where we've already built up a huge amount of value over a number of years. Or it might include carefully scanning and, you know, canvassing from the expertise of those embedded in country partners who really know their stuff, you know. And I think that that's not always easily done when designing new uh, research programs or implementation programs. And like you say, the incentives are always there to do things quickly and to get results quickly. But I think that that's absolutely essential if we want research to policy impact. Thank you very much, both of you. I think that's been a really interesting, wide-ranging discussion.
anyone who's listening who'd like to hear more, all the research is up on the website, www.younglives.org.uk. And thank you for listening.